we sort of feel like cows can, would continue to be positioned well. You know, all of the cows ETFs from large cap U.S. to small cap to international to global to even emerging markets all trade uh, under 10 times earnings and most of them are in the five to seven times range. So we're not overpaying for the stocks that are in those portfolios. They're all profitable companies. They all have a lot of free cash flow and high free cash flow yield. And in many cases, they're paying more competitive dividends than the broad markets. Hello and uh, welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays, our weekly podcast where we speak to some of the most interesting players in the ETF space and discuss market trends from an ETF perspective. We have a great guest for you today, Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs Distributors. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks, Daria. I appreciate you having me. Um, Great to have you with us. And your Pacer US Cash Cows 100 ETF has been one of the biggest success stories in the past year. But before we get into that and discuss that particular ETF, um, I want to hear about growth at Pacer ETFs. So you've reached, uh, I understand, 20 billion in assets at the start of this year compared to 10.2 billion um, at the start of last year. So what do you attribute this growth to in the challenging market environment? Yeah, so... um... For starters, let me just just to make my compliance people happy. It was mm-hmm. nineteen and a half billion at the end of twenty twenty one. We fell just short of the twenty billion dollar mark at the end of twenty twenty two, and we're at twenty two and a half billion as we speak. And so, I would say that you know uh, the vast majority of the the success in the AUM growth is attributed attributable to a couple of things. One is we we have a very large uh, distribution effort at Pacer. We have about 79 external wholesalers and four divisional managers in the field. And then inside the home office, we have a team of about 38 or so internal wholesalers that support that external effort. We spend all our time talking to financial advisors and trying to help them understand how um, the Pacer ETF solutions fit into client portfolios and, and you know, what they work best for and, and uh, what the benefits are. So, um, you know, we, 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 we've been blessed, if you will. We've had kind of a couple of spurts of growth. The initial spurt came from some trend following strategies, which are risk management strategies that use the, you know, the 200-day moving average to, to toggle in and out of equity exposure or T-bills. Those are called trend pilots. Mm-hmm. We launched a series of uh, factor ETFs about two years ago. Um, they've gathered about a billion two or a billion three in AUM. Um, the biggest of those would be a, just a factor rotation strategy that goes from you know high beta to low vol. Uh, it looks at relative strength once a month. And then obviously the biggest flows have come in the cows family. And I say family because COWZ, which is the large cap ETF, Mm-hmm. Although it's the biggest this year, um, the other cows strategies, global, GCAL, international, ICAL, CAF, which is small cap, mm-hmm. and even ECAL to a certain extent have been pulling in uh, some some pretty sizable assets. So, um, you know, I think we focus on the on the end user at the end of the day, and that's the client. What does it do for the client? And then we try to work with the financial advisor community to see if we can fit that into their client portfolios. Uh, so I understand you have six fund families and you mentioned trend pilot, custom and cash cows. Could you give us a sense of where you're seeing the most growth in terms of inflows just to give a little bit more context? Yeah, it's, it's definitely on the cow side. You know, cows has probably taken in $2 billion so far this year and it took in the cow suite probably took in, I don't know, 10 or 11 billion last year. 
And is it hard to project or do you have some numbers or targets that you're projecting for this year, just given the growth that you've seen in the in the past year? Yeah, we're always pretty aggressive, Daria, about what we think our growth potential is. I think when we set out our business plan for this year, um, it was to try to get to 40 billion, just to sort of almost double again from where we, we began the year. And we've gotten off to a pretty good start. The market's certainly not helping us here, um, but um, you know we're up about about 3 billion in AUM year to date. So, you know, I think, you know, there's, a, there's still a possibility that we could hit our goal if all things go according to plan. If all things go according to plan. And also you're growing in terms of headcount, right? In terms of adding 38 new employees and your total headcount is now 155. Are you also looking to grow in terms of your, in terms of your team this year? Yeah, I think we're going to sort of grow. Um, we've grown the Salesforce quite a bit. You know, I think three or three years or so ago, it was about 22 externals. And as I said earlier, it's about 79 today. We just added uh, 13 to our wirehouse channel. That's just to sort of accommodate uh, the addition of Edward Jones as a, as a participant, if you will. They put a couple of our ETFs on their platform and they've got, you know, 15,000 plus offices across the country. So that growth, I think, will probably pause for a while there. We will probably add a few people on the PM side, add a few people on the marketing side, and add a person or two here or there on the key account side. So we will continue to grow, but I think not quite as quickly as we have been growing in terms of headcount over the last two or three years. Sounds like a, a busy year. And you mentioned the economic environment this year. So when the Fed minutes came out, came out this week um, showing that the Fed remains concerned about the rate hikes and is you know, resolved to fight inflation this year. Um, what, how does that change your outlook in any way? Does that bode well for your, you know, the flagship fund for the cash cow uh, funds as well? Well, you know, for the last couple of years, we've been sort of preaching this, this idea that it's time for investors to lower their overall portfolios PE before the market does it to them. Mm -hmm. The market has certainly done a fair amount of that, but you know, with inflation sort of stubborn and the Fed committed to continuing to be sort of a heavy hand, if you will, in terms of rising rates and shrinking the balance sheet. Um, when you look historically, you know, stocks should, should probably not necessarily be trading at 18 or 19 or 20 times earnings. Um, they should be trading at lower valuations than that. Um, so there's still some potential multiple contraction ahead of us. We're starting to see some softening in terms of forecasts, forecasts going forward on the earnings front. Um, and so if we start to see a little bit of an earnings recession, if you will, or, or, or shrinkage in overall earnings, then that could be a bit of a headwind. We don't think about it in, in, in terms of what our goals are. Um, but if we had that kind of an environment, uh, we, we, we sort of feel like cows can, would continue to be positioned well. You know, all of the cows ETFs from large cap U.S. to small cap to international to global to even emerging markets all trade uh, under 10 times earnings. And most of them are in the five to seven times range. So we're not overpaying for the stocks that are in those portfolios. They're all profitable companies. They all have a lot of free cash flow and high free cash flow yield. And in many cases, they're paying more competitive dividends than the broad market. So in an environment where there's still a great deal of uncertainty about where the what the the, the overall direction is, um, it, it may make sense to be a little bit more defensive. And the cows portfolios are positioned that way, even though they've delivered uh, really exceptional returns. You know, G cow mm -hmm. cows were both positive last year for the year, and the year before that they had tremendous returns. So you're not giving up your G 
return potential uh, just by buying a high quality portfolio that you know that trades at a discount. Um, you're actually, at least recently, in most recent history, actually getting better returns by doing so. We had uh, Cal Z, which was just slightly positive for the year in 2022 when the market was down. GCal was up, you know, five to six percent ish. So we've had really attractive relative returns versus our benchmarks. Um, and so that's, you know, I think part of what's fueling the overall growth story. The other part is that, you know, that the premise that we we initially used in terms of building out this series was that most traditional value investing is based on a metric that uses price to book uh, and in particular low price to book. Mm-hmm. And there's a good reason for that. Academically, there's a lot of work that's been done by two academics, Fama and French, who you know won a Nobel Prize in the early 90s by discovering what they identified as the quote unquote value premium in the market. And that was just by simply buying low price to book stocks versus high price to book stocks, you would get a much higher return. All that sort of work got embedded really across the industry, you know, from the academic studies to, you know, the study material that somebody might take if they were gonna get their CFA. And then it also got embedded in the big index and benchmark uh, folks way of thinking. So if you bought the Russell 1000 value ETF, you essentially own the 499 stocks in the Russell 1000 with the lowest price to book. That's it. That's the only screen. And our premise was that, you know, the world has changed. We're not a manufacturing based society anymore. We're basically a consumption based, healthcare based, technology and communication services and brand based economy here in the United States and, and moving that way across the globe as well. And so the majority of the U.S. stock market's market value in the 70s could be attributable to tangible assets, things you can see, touch, feel, pick up and put a price tag on. And that's good for a traditional price to book investing. But today, 90 percent of the stock market's value is based on intangibles. Those are things you can't see, touch, feel or pick up or put a price tag on. Like think of a name like Google. Their market value isn't based on how many servers they own or how many data centers they operate. Their market value is based on the fact that they revolutionized search and figured out how to monetize it. So in a world where you can't point to physical assets anymore to determine what a stock price or what component that stock price, what component of that stock price's value it is, you have to find a different metric. And so that's where we sort of stumbled across with the help of some research folks that we use uh, locally in Philadelphia, free cash flow and free cash flow yield. And free cash flow yield is the free cash flow company generates divided by its enterprise value. Enterprise values, market cap plus debt minus cash. So it's just a simple calculation. If I were to buy the whole company in total, what would I have to pay? And then how much cash return would I get every year? And that higher as a percentage, that cash return is we think the cheaper that stock is relative to its peers or its broad-based index. Um, and there's a fair amount of research that we've done on this that that sort of before we launched the product that indicated that we thought if, if we did this, that we would be able to generate excess returns versus our benchmarks. And so far, that's been the case across the board. Well, it seems like that investment thesis have fared well over the years. Have you tweaked or revised that original idea in over the years? No, um, we do a couple of things that are slightly different than you know traditional asset management firms would do. For example, we don't wait to cow series by market cap. We use free cash flow as the denominator. So you're not doing, you're not making the mistake traditional indexes make. If you looked at the S and P 500, for example, you know, 20% of the companies in the S and P 500 take up more than 70% of the weight in the portfolio. 
So 100 stocks out of 500 are really all that matters to your returns. And if they go well, you do well. And if they go bad, you do you do poorly. So we didn't want to wait by market cap. We used free cash flow. And then we capped every name at 2%. And we rebalance on a regular basis quarterly for the U.S. strategies and semi-annually for international because we want to be reactive. So the, the, the way that the strategy was designed is that really free cash flow and free cash flow yield is a pretty good indicator, if you will, of where the positive economic activity is taking place overall in the economy. It sort of follows it. So that that's what led us away from technology in the last couple of years and towards energy, for example, or towards materials. That's what has led us to healthcare, which has been a big boost to our performance and away from consumer discretionary. So I don't think we'll tweak or change the methodology. We are launching and we did launch a growth version of the cows. Uh, first of those, the ticker is COWG. We think traditional growth is potentially as flawed as traditional value and that the metric that most people look at for growth investments is sales growth. And the research that we have tells us that sales growth by itself does not necessarily equal stock market performance. It's only profitable sales growth that matters. And so we use free cash flow margin as the screen and we plan on building a whole series of growth cows, if you will, to go next to the value cows that are already out. Mm -hmm. As I said, large cap is out, COWG. The small cap version's filed. Uh, that ticker is uh, CAFG, CAFG. And so we're just going to sort of mirror on the other side of the value suite, a growth version or a growth suite that sort of takes a slightly different view of how to identify and build indexes and then ultimately ETFs that would track growth names versus value names. That makes sense. And you mentioned also that you speak to a lot of financial advisors these days. What what are they most concerned about, either your own products or the ETF space and, and broadly? Well, it's, you know, it's it's kind of funny. We talk to a lot of people, obviously, with 79 externals. So we, we have a lot of interactions. And there's really sort of, I guess, two camps that we run across consistently. One is uh, that camp that still feels that the market may have a few more quarters worth of headwind. Um, and we need to sort of shake out what the real effect of, you know, the Fed's aggressive policy and inflation is me means to overall earnings. And then there's another camp that is sort of in, the, in it, that believes that at some point the Fed's going to pivot and, and start to move rates down, you know, in reaction to uh, the amount of damage that they cause. And, and they probably are both right. It's just the timing of those two things that perhaps where there's big differences. And I think that's why you're seeing so much day-to-day -day volatility. You know, we had a few weeks ago, everybody was all excited and the market was up because it looked like, you know, there was enough uh, data to point to the fact that the Fed might not have to be continuing to be aggressive. And then lo and behold, a week or so later, the last two or three days have been horrible in the stock market. And that's really because of the opposite. That It appears that they're not having any meaningful effect on the economy yet. They're not having a meaningful effect on increasing unemployment, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, leads people to believe that the Fed will continue to stay tight and continue to raise rates until they accomplish their objective, which is to get inflation back down to that 2% target. So these are the, the two camps that in terms of your advice or their questions or concern in terms of um, ETFs or products, uh, what is kind of your response to them? Our, our response is pretty simple. I mean, most people run diversified portfolios. So what we're trying to do is to, to to look inside those portfolios and for example in large cap value and, and point out that if you if you added cows, for example, to your traditional large cap value portfolio, 
you would be buying a different set of stocks that have different fundamentals. They have more profitability. They have higher dividend payments, higher free cash flow, and a higher free cash flow yield, and that they're trading at a discount. And so this is a way to build a better portfolio going forward. So we don't really try to take a side, if you will. What mm -hmm. we try to figure out is what the FA owns and then give them solutions that, that, that will allow them, we hope, to be able to improve the overall investment returns in the client's portfolio by adding different things than what has traditionally been used in the past. That makes sense. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the Pacer Trend Pilot U.S. Bond ETF. Earlier this month, you've announced exposure in index change for the for the Pacer Trend Pilot U.S. Bond ETF. Um, what prompted this change, if, if there are any, any yeah, tell you yeah. what into there? Yeah, that's one of our risk management strategies. We have some equity versions of Trend Pilot. We have this fixed income version, PTBD. Um, you know, bond world is far different than the stock world in that uh, trading costs are substantially higher. Um, and so if you have a strategy that's going to rotate between one asset class and fixed income to another versus, uh, say, rotating between equities and T-bills, you know, the cost of doing that is is much lower than going from one type of fixed income to another type of fixed income. And so the change in the index was really designed more than anything to, to put a better high yield benchmark out there and a high yield index for us to track that would allow us to have better tracking error to our benchmark and much mm -hmm. lower transaction costs. So we could, re we could replicate that index and get that index's return better than the previous index we had, we had, had been using um, and then be able to do so uh, with less overall trading costs. And so we just replaced the high yield index that we use in that strategy with a different version that we think over time will provide better results. That makes sense. And you've been in the ETF industry for a long time. Are there changes or trends that you're particularly excited about in 2023? You know, I'm as excited today as I was about the growth of ETFs when we launched about seven years ago. I think you know, I think when we launched the ETF assets in the U.S. were under two, two trillion dollars, and I think they're seven and a half or eight trillion today. And there's you know people that believe it'll be fifteen or sixteen trillion in the next three to five years. So um, to to us, it's exciting to be in a business where you're going to see that kind of growth. Um, I'm interested in seeing you know the continued uh, innovation. You know the ETF business started out as fairly a fairly simple business that just simply was wrapping and replicating sort of well-known benchmark indexes. And there are a lot of uh, you know creative people out there that are bringing smart solutions. We hope we're one of those. We we tend to operate with three words in mind: innovative, disruptive, and unique. We we, we don't think we want to compete head to head with the behemoths of the ETF world because, you know, they have a big asset base advantage and a big cost advantage, but we think we can build stuff that's innovative, disruptive, and unique that can provide for a different solution for FAs and for their clients. And so we're still excited about the business and the growth potential in the business. And it's nice to be in a business where they, they what, what is that old expression, a rising tide floats all boats, so to speak. So, you know, if, if we go from seven or seven and a half or eight trillion to 15 trillion in the ETF business mm -hmm. and we do our job at Pacer, we should be able to continue to ride that trend along with the rest of the industry. Well, um, thank you for that. You know, here at um, ETF.com, we try to educate a broad audience about the ETF industry and retail investors as well. So when it comes to your funds or ETFs in general, is there a biggest kind of misconception that you've come across over the years? 
Um, well, I, I don't know that there's an overall misconception. I would say that, you know, we're, we, we have strategies that tend to have a lot of moving parts, if you will, or that rotate positions. And so some people would think of that as more of an active approach, but we are all of the things that we run at Pacer with the exception of two, which are actually active ETF strategies. One is a fund of funds and the other is a floating rate bond fund are all passive strategies, but they're just not static. And so mm -hmm. the turnover in the S&P 500 on an annual basis is, is much lower than what you'd see in a, in a Pacer ETF, let's say. Um, and that's by design because we think the only way to, to produce attractive excess returns on the upside or to provide, you know, thoughtful and, and meaningful risk management on the downside is to be different than the broad indexes from time to time. So everything we design from an index perspective has uh, uh, some underlying rebalance strategy or some underlying trigger that will move it from one place to the other. And some people might think of that as, as active, but it's really not. It's just 100% rules-based passive approach that's using component parts to accomplish a goal or take a broad index and pull it apart and put it back together differently. Great. Well, thank you so much for that, Sean. Um, and to our audience, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next week.